Today's podcast is brought to you by DNA Fit, providers of state-of-the-art genetic testing. Their services build a roadmap for your individualized health, fitness, and lifestyle goals by testing the genetic markers that make you unique. Go to dnafit.com and enter the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout for a whopping 30% off your own personal genetic test. This podcast is also brought to you by Primal Mayo, made with pure avocado oil, organic cage-free eggs, rosemary extract, vinegar derived from non-GMO beets, and a dash of salt. You can turn any traditional dish into a superfood with just one serving. Healthy mayo? Who knew? The following Mark's Daily Apple article was written by Mark Sisson and is narrated by Brock Armstrong. Five ways to get the most bang for your workout buck. Late last year, I introduced the idea of the minimum effective dose, the lowest dose to produce a desired outcome. Whether it's calorie intake, exercise, sunlight, carbohydrates, or work habits, we often think we need much more than we actually do to get the results we want. Why crank out those extra reps, put in those extra hours, or choke down another chicken breast if they won't make you any more prepared to handle what life dishes out? Failing to heed the minimum effective dose costs you money, time, and mental real estate. Figuring out the minimum effective dose for those various inputs shaping our days can make us more efficient and open up the rest of our life to do things we actually want to do. You might ask, what exactly are the minimum effective doses for exercise? How little do I have to train to stay and or get fit? And what kind of effects can we expect to get from said minimum doses? And the answers to those questions will depend on who's asking. But we have a few specific examples of people maintaining, improving, or radically transforming their fitness levels with minimum effective doses of exercise. So let's take a closer look. Number one, to maintain cardiovascular fitness. Cardiovascular deconditioning during the off-season is a big issue in cardiovascular intensive sports like soccer. The last thing many athletes want to do after a grueling season is to resume even more grueling training on a regular basis. Understandable, but then they come back a couple months later and suck wind for a few weeks until they've regained their endurance. What if there were a quick and dirty, efficient way to train and maintain your endurance in the off-season, or any season, for the average person who doesn't want to work out more than he has to work out? In 2014, semi-pro soccer players were placed on one of two off-season training regimens. High-intensity interval training once a week, or high-intensity interval training once every two weeks. Both hit regimens used identical training loads, and it was fairly brutal. Five four-minute high-intensity rounds at 87-97% to 97 of maximum heart rate. No mention of the rest intervals, but I'd imagine they were at least several minutes long to allow them to recover sufficiently. Whether they did it every week or every two weeks, the soccer players maintained their VO2 max. There was no cardiovascular advantage to doing it every week. Those bi-weekly sessions would have been miserable, but they were over pretty quickly, leaving the soccer players 
plenty of time to work on sports-specific skills, or other forms of training, or, you know, reading, going out to dinner with friends and family, hiking, watching good movies, etc. In fact, those players running HIT every other week also trained a couple hours every week, mostly strength training. The every week group trained over five additional hours per week. Number two, to improve muscle endurance and aerobic capacity. We all think we know how to improve aerobic fitness. Cardio, whatever that means. But cardio, at least how most people envision it, takes forever and is pretty dang boring. What if you could improve your aerobic fitness while also improving your muscular endurance in a fraction of the time? By muscular endurance, I mean the amount of work your muscles can endure and the amount of time you can keep your force output high. Four times a week, for four weeks, adult females performed a single four-minute Tabata protocol with a single exercise. The exercise choices included burpees, mountain climbers, jumping jacks, or squat thrusts. Another group ran on the treadmill for 30 minutes at 85% of their maximum heart rate. After four weeks, their fitness levels were evaluated. While the treadmill group enjoyed a 7% improvement in aerobic capacity, the interval group improved theirs by 8%. And when it came to muscle endurance, the interval group saw massive gains. Leg extensions were up by 40%. Chest press was up by 207%. Sit-ups increased by 64%. Push-ups by 135%. And back extensions by 75%. Most importantly, the women found the Tabata exercise protocols more enjoyable and sustainable than the aerobic exercise protocol. Their intention to engage in exercise was higher than the aerobic group. All that in just 16 minutes of work per week. Number three, to improve overall physical fitness. What does physical fitness mean to you? In my book, it's a combination of strength, strength endurance, and aerobic capacity. The ability to go hard, go fast, and go long. A pair of researchers came up with a seven-minute workout designed to improve these physical capacities in as little time as possible. The exercises were basic, but effective, as is always the case, right? Each one of the exercises is to be performed for 30 seconds with 10 seconds of rest in between each one. Here are the exercises. Jumping jacks, wall sits, push-ups, crunches, step-ups, squats, dips, planks, running in place with high knees, lunges, push-ups with rotation, and side planks. Twelve in all. That's a solid list of movements, eh? This year, researchers tested the seven-minute workout. A cohort of men and women were divided into three groups. One group did a seven-minute circuit training workout three times per week. Another group did a 14-minute circuit training workout three times a week. And the third group was sedentary. The 14- and 7-minute groups performed the same exercises. The 14-minute group just did them twice. Both exercising groups enjoyed improvements in muscular endurance. The males in both groups also got stronger, while the females improved their aerobic capacity. <laughs> Training for 14 minutes which is fairly minimal to begin with, 
wasn't necessary to obtain the results. Number four, to increase metabolic health. You've probably heard me discuss mitochondrial biogenesis, the creation of entirely new mitochondria. This is important because mitochondria are the power plants of the cell and ultimately the body. They metabolize fuel and convert it into usable energy. The more mitochondria you have, and the better they work, the more fat and glucose you're going to utilize. And since energy overload is toxic to our cells and predictive of many disease states, including diabetes and inflammatory conditions, having more mitochondria on hand will keep you healthier for longer. So how much exercise do you actually have to do to promote mitochondrial biogenesis? Well, not a huge amount, but you will probably have to sprint. In the short term, a workout consisting of four 30-second all-out cycling sprints activated mitochondrial biogenesis in the skeletal muscle of human subjects in one study. Shorter sprints work too. In fact, a program consisting of three sets of five four seconds, yes, I said four seconds, treadmill sprints with 20 seconds of rest between each sprint done three times per week for four weeks upregulated molecular signaling associated with mitochondrial biogenesis. You could do that during a commercial break. I've also talked about the importance of maintaining good insulin sensitivity and how exercise can help in that regard. Turns out that it doesn't take much to see a positive effect. Research indicates that four to six 30-second bouts of all-out sprint cycling with four minutes of rest done three times per week improves insulin sensitivity in already active and sedentary young adults. The measurements were taken 72 hours post-training just to be sure that the improved insulin sensitivity wasn't a result of the acute exercise effects. That's six to eight minutes a week of actual work for massive improvements. And number five, to control blood sugar. Visit most fitness communities online and walking gets short shrift. Walking isn't exercise, they'll say. It's a poor substitute for real movement that invariably involves grunting, heavy weights, gallons of milk, and chalk. Not to take anything away from heavy lifting, because that stuff is indispensable, but walking isn't useless. It's essential. There's even evidence that a tiny amount of walking at a moderate pace, like 15 minutes worth to be exact, is enough to blunt the postprandial spike in glucose that can occur in people and lead to real problems down the line. Make that walking brisk, and you can cut the necessary volume down to a single 21-minute bout while enjoying the beneficial effects on postprandial insulin. So don't let anyone tell you those short post-meal strolls aren't helping. They are. They represent a minimal yet highly effective dose of movement that improves your ability to handle blood sugar spikes after meals and regulate your fasting blood sugar throughout the day. More intense, higher volume training certainly improves blood sugar control too, but a short walk after meals is the simplest, easiest, and most minimal. All right, let's briefly review. 
to maintain cardiovascular fitness, do five four-minute intense intervals once every two weeks. To improve your conditioning and muscular endurance, do standard protocol Tabata burpees or mountain climbers or any of the other exercises I talked about earlier a few times a week. To become more fit overall, a seven-minute continuous bodyweight workout is sufficient. To increase insulin sensitivity, go all out on a bike four times for 30 seconds with four minutes of rest three times a week. To grow more mitochondria, five four-second all-out sprints with 20 seconds of rest three times a week might be enough. And to reduce blood sugar spikes and improve fasting blood sugar, walk for 15 minutes after each meal. Furthermore, many of these protocols will have crossover effects with each other. You don't have to and probably shouldn't do all of them because, well, then you've just constructed a high-volume training regimen. Not so daunting, is it? What are your minimal effective doses for exercise? How little have you gotten away with while enjoying improved health, fitness, and vitality? I'm always looking for ways to cut back on training while retaining the effects. So have at it over at MarksDailyApple.com. And thanks for listening, everyone.